Well, we're glad you're with us this morning. Um, I'd asked um, my family earlier this week, I said, what, what can I share on Easter Sunday morning that hasn't already been shared before? Some of you who have preached, uh, Lisa, Louise, Dick, and some of you have preached, uh, Glenn, maybe you've had that thought. How, how many different ways can you talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ? I mean, he rose. I mean, what else is there, right? Uh, um, I mean, I could talk about all of the uh, dynamic events that surrounded the event when the stone was rolled away, and, and all that would be true. But early this week, I just felt as though God uh, were, was wanting me to go in just a couple practical areas. Um, I want to talk to you this morning about what the empty tomb means to you and me. A basic title, nothing extravagant about that title, Bear. But there's two things this week that God revealed to me that I want to share with you this morning. The first actually came uh, with a conversation that we were having with Parker earlier this week. Parker was relating the story. He, was, uh, he said he was reading the story in Luke. I believe uh, Dick already read about it. We already talked about or heard about it in the, the video. And uh, relating the story in Luke to where the women went to the tomb and they encountered the angel who said, uh, you're looking for Jesus. He's not here. He is risen from the grave. And it so startled the women, they didn't know what to do, so they ran back to the eleven, not the twelve, because Judas was now out of the picture. So they ran back to the disciples, and they told the disciples, and what I find interesting, and they showed in the video as well, says that the disciples did not believe the women. They thought they were crazy, they thought they were hallucinating, they thought there's no way. None of the disciples believed the women None except Peter. Actually, if you read the Gospels, uh, John also believed, but that's another story. But for my purposes this morning, none of them but Peter. And and Parker was intrigued when he ran across this part right here. The women came up to the uh, disciples. None of the disciples believed them, but it says this in Luke 24, 12. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb. This is the first thing that I want to share with you this morning. We got to talking about this and asked the question, and I asked the question, what was it about Peter that made him get up and run to the tomb? Why did he not act or react like the other guys, the other disciples? They must have been discouraged, they were overwhelmed, they were depressed, they, whatever you think, it was probably true. And what made him get up and go? I believe in order to answer this question, and there is a resurrection message in that verse right there, in order to explain this, we need to look a little bit at Peter's life. You see, Peter is known to be a tough, weathered man of the sea. From what we can see in the Scriptures, Peter um, has been uh, impetuous. He's somewhat reckless. Uh, a hothead, rash, irresponsible, always getting into trouble because he spoke or he acted before he thought. Does anyone can relate to Peter this morning? <laughs> I think that's one of the reasons why Peter is so loved because we can see ourselves so much in Peter. 
One moment he's boldly declaring, when Jesus asked the disciples, he says, but who, who do people say that I am? Then he said to them, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. He can have those incredible, wonderful moments. And then if you read that chapter just a few verses later, Jesus was talking about how he was going to be arrested and crucified. And Jesus rebuked him and said, no, that will never happen. This is just a few verses after Peter had said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus turned to Peter and he said, Satan, get thou behind me. Peter had some up and down moments all of his life. But I want to look at the last few days of Peter's life leading up to the time when the women approached the disciples. Just imagine this with me. Go to the garden. Again, Jesus is telling the disciples what is getting ready to happen. How he will be arrested, he will be crucified, and then he looks at them and he said that you, disciples, you will desert me here in a few moments. And of course, Peter, he says, no way, Jesus. I will never desert you. Not if I'm the last person standing, I will never desert you. And you remember Jesus' words. He looked at Peter and he said, Peter, before the rooster crows, you will have denied knowing me three times. A little while after that in the garden, the soldiers come and they arrest Jesus and we see the impetuous, reckless Peter. What does he do? He takes a sword and he cuts off the ear of the high priest servant, Malchus. Cuts his ear off. Jesus does one last miracle and he takes the ear and he restores Malchus's ear. And then he turns to Peter and he rebukes Peter once again. Go with me to the courtyard. Jesus is taken before the Sanhedrin. And to his credit, Peter does follow. I believe there is something inside of Peter that he said, I'm going to follow through with my words. I can't believe this is happening. He's probably confused. He's probably dazed. He's probably scared. But he said, I'm going to follow Jesus. I told him I'm not going to desert him. And here he is in the courtyard just outside of the mock courtroom that is going on. What do we see happen? If you read the scripture verses, it tells us that uh, the accusations were false and then they finally accused Jesus of blasphemy uh, when he called himself the son of God. And then things got violent. They they began to hit him. They began to spit spit on him. And I believe that Peter saw this. He knew what was taking place and he got scared to death. Fear just washed all over him. So he went there to support Jesus, to back Jesus, but all of a sudden he's scared to death. And this servant girl comes up to him and said, hey, are you one of him? I think you're one of his disciples. Before he even knew it, he did not even know him. Scriptures then say that he went away. He just wanted to get away from that girl. And another servant girl came up to him and said, you are one of them. I mean, I I believe I saw you with him, and he denied it again. And then the third time, a group of people said, no, your speech and your your, uh, language and, and your accent gives it away. You are one of his disciples. And this time, it tells us that Peter got violent, and he began to swear. He began to curse, and he said, I don't know the man. 
That happened just outside the courtroom. And then Peter heard the one sound that I think in some way, shape, or form probably haunted him for the rest of his life. He heard the rooster crow. It says that he went off and he wept bitterly. Once again, he had failed his Lord. My question to you is, what do you think the last few days must have been like for Peter? I believe from the time that Jesus is crucified until the women show up, Peter has been running. He's been in and out of seclusion. He's afraid that they're going to catch him. But I think they must have been the worst three days of his life. An overwhelming sense of shame and guilt and embarrassment. You see, in times past, every time that that Peter messed up, he could always run back to Jesus. And what would Jesus do? He would always forgive him. And he would always restore him and he would bring him back into the fold, but not this time. He must have been devastated with regret because he knew that he would never see Jesus again. He, he would never have a second chance to make this one right. This was, this was worse than any time before. He wanted a, a do-over. How many of us want do-overs in life? But that will never happen now. Jesus is dead and he'll never have the opportunity to make it right. And So my rhetorical question to you this morning is, have you ever been there? Have you ever been so low in life, been so discouraged? Have you ever had shame and guilt and embarrassment just wash over you to where you don't think there's no way you can ever make things right? Painful memories, scars from mistakes that perhaps that were made in the past. Things that you said or things that you did that you wish you could go back and have a do-over. I think we'd be surprised the number of people that we pass every day. I'm reminded of the Steve Green song. Every day we pass them by, I can see it in their eyes. Empty people filled with care headed who knows where. On they go through private pain, living fear to fear. Laughter hides their silent cries for only Jesus hears. And then the chorus says, people need the Lord. People need the Lord. At the end of broken dreams, people still need the Lord. When will we realize that people need the Lord? Back to my question is, what does the resurrection mean? I think I can tell you what it meant for Peter. I think we can understand now just a little bit why he jumped up as quick as he did. You see, when Peter heard the women, the women say that the tomb was empty and the angel said, He is risen, He is not here, I believe at that moment, as the women told Peter this, his heart practically burst with hope. He could not believe what he was hearing, thinking to himself, he's alive, he's alive. If I can just see him one more time, I know he'll give me a do-over. 
I know that he'll forgive me. I know that he'll give me the redemption that I need. I know if I can just see him, I can make things right with him. Church, not only was reconciliation with Jesus what Peter wanted, it's what Jesus wanted with Peter. There's an awesome verse that I love that emphasizes this. It's found in Luke, or Mark. It says this, 16. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. This is the other version of the women uh, coming to the tomb. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and... But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. I don't know if you've ever caught that before, but why did he single out Peter? But go, tell his disciples and Peter. Why did he say this? It's because the angel wanted Peter to specifically know that Jesus would be waiting for him. A resurrected living Savior would be waiting for Peter to forgive him, to welcome him back into the fold again, to give him a do-over, to give him a second chance. See, that's what the resurrection means. Praise the God. He knows everything, church, that you've done against him and what the resurrection meant to Peter, it can mean for you and me today. Redemption. Hope. A second chance. <laughs> I do over. Mandy, my leg is getting a cook, kicking. It's getting a kicking. What the angel told the women that day, he's telling all of us, but go tell his disciples and Peter, go tell Rob, go tell Mary, go tell Joe, go tell Elizabeth, go tell Doug, tell the entire world that I've conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave so that they can have a second chance. They can have redemption. Maybe there's someone here this morning, you kind of identify with Peter. You're here because it's Easter and a wonderful observance of a risen Savior, but deep down, there's shame and there's guilt. Maybe you've done things that no one else knows. Maybe you've done things that only you know about. You think it's only you that know about it. But go tell the disciples and put your name in there. This is what the resurrection means to you and me. So I thank the Lord and I thank Parker for that conversation that we had this week. What a wonderful hope. What a wonderful truth that we have in that. He wants to offer forgiveness and redemption. A second chance. A do-over. That's the first thing. Before I delve into the second point, I want us to talk briefly about the concept of God, just for a few minutes. And to do that, I want us to recall one of the most popular stories in the Bible. Daniel and the lion's den. We all, we all know the story. Daniel, who had 
outlasted several rulers and several kings, and he outlasted King Nebuchadnezzar. And now this takes place with King Darius, the Persian king. You know the story. Let's recall it. King Darius recognized the leadership qualities of Daniel. He recognized there was something about his God. So he put Daniel uh, the head. He was more like a governor over many regions. And he, Darius had many governors, had many uh, called satraps, many uh, authorities um, over the people. And it said that Daniel was one of the highest in his kingdom because he has the favor of God, and Darius saw that. Well, some of the other rulers got jealous of Daniel. And so they went to King Darius, and they basically said, look, we don't think that anybody should be able to pray for the next 30 days unless they're praying to you, King Darius. You are the great and awesome king. So if you are okay with that, we want you to just sign it into law, and it will be that way. And he said, okay, I like that law. And if you read the story, it tells us, you know, the story, uh, Daniel opened his window, faced Jerusalem, and he prayed three times a day. But what I really appreciate is when you read the story, and we were talking about this yesterday, it specifically says, and Daniel, knowing what the decree was, he still opened his windows and prayed three times a day. And the jealous ones, they got just what they wanted. They trapped him. They got him. Caught him red-handed. They went to King Darius and told him, and he was just sick to his stomach. Reading between the lines, you know that he was sick to his stomach. says that he was upset at himself for even making that law because he loved Daniel. But he knew that he had to follow through on his word. Takes Daniel, throws him in the lion's den. You know the story. tells us that he could not sleep all night. Darius could not sleep all night. He went back the next morning and there is Daniel unharmed. Unscathed. I don't want to focus this morning on Daniel or Daniel's words, but what I want us to focus on are the words of King Darius. Look at what King Darius said when he, right before he threw him into the lion's den, this is what King Darius said. When he got there, he called out in anguish. Actually, this is after the next morning. He got there, he called out in anguish, Daniel, servant of the living God, was your God whom you served so faithfully able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel called back and said, King, O king, live forever. I am safe. My God has taken care of me. And look at these next words. Then King Darius sent the message to the people of every race and nation and language throughout the world. Peace and prosperity to you. I decree, I decree that everyone throughout my kingdom should tremble with fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he will endure forever. His kingdom will, oh, there's the word kingdom, but I won't get off on that. His kingdom will never be destroyed and his rule will never end. Did you notice how Darius described the God of Daniel? The living God. We find this expression, the living God, many times in Scripture. But church, is there anything we so often forget in our daily lives than the fact that our God is the living God? You see, what God is today, He was three to 4,000 years ago. 
He has the same sovereign power. He's the same gracious, patient, and loving father that he was three to 4,000 years ago. We often forget it. I know that I do. That what he did for his people thousands of years ago, he can do for us today. The word is full of references to God as being the living God. Not a dead God, <laughs> not a make-believe God, not a, uh, a, a made-up God, not an imaginary God, but the living God. And church, here's my second and final point. Because He's a living God, you can trust Him. I didn't think I'd get too many oh, with that. We can confide in Him even in our darkest moments. But may we never lose sight of the fact that He is and He always be, will be the living God. Now, how does this tie into the resurrection? Well, Jesus was all human, but He was all divine, yes? Yes. He was God's representative here on earth. Look at a couple of the verses that speak about Jesus. Philippians 2 says, You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though He was God, He did not think equality with God is something to cling to. Instead, He gave up His divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, tells us in Colossians 1.15, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. What does John 1.1 tell us? In the beginning was the Word. The Word is speaking of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. It already existed. The Word was with God and the Word was God. What did Jesus say about himself? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was even born, I am. One more. Jesus said, the Father and I are one. Jesus claimed to be God incarnate. Some pretty bold statements, right? I mean, just go around your life and go around your workplace and just declare to be God and see what kind of reactions you get. I know there's people who think they're God. We won't go there. But this claim of Jesus, folks, is what got him crucified to begin with. This is a bold statement. But here's my question for you this morning on our second point. Does it even matter? Or why does it matter? Or why is it important? What would happen if Jesus had never risen from the grave? Now, if I had time, I would just sit here for about five minutes and quiet and just let you think about that. What are the implications of that question? What would it mean if Jesus did not rise again from the dead? The ramifications, church, are huge. Follow me here. If Jesus did not rise again, then maybe he wasn't truly equal with God. Perhaps. Maybe he wasn't equal with God. If he wasn't equal with God, then perhaps he wasn't truly God. And if this is true, then it introduces a whole new set of questions regarding God himself. Such as, maybe God's not all that we think he is. 
Maybe he's not all-powerful and all-knowing and all-seeing and ever-present. And if we can't believe that Jesus, who claimed to be God, rose again from the dead, then how do we even know that God exists at all? Do you see where this line of thinking goes? All the ramifications if we don't believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead. If Jesus is not alive, then 1 Corinthians 15, 13 through 19 is true. You've heard this, but let me read it. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. If Jesus did not rise, then all of that is true, church. If Jesus did not throw off death's power, do we really even need to give our lives to this man? More importantly, do we even need to trust him? But oh, the power of the resurrection. (laughs) Oh, the power of what happened in three days. Jesus did rise again. Jesus is Alive. Yesterday, I went and saw, I don't know, how many of you have seen the Lee Strobel movie, Case for Christ? Have you gone to see that movie? Okay, boy, just one or two of you, okay? I would encourage all of you to go see that movie, an incredible movie. Lee Strobel, author of Case for Christ, back in the 70s, he was an atheist, and his wife ended up accepting Christ. And so he went on a journey, several months journey. He was a reporter for the Chicago Tribune. Um, an investigative reporter, and he only lived his life on facts. So he went about investigating the resurrection of Jesus Christ, talking to many scholars and many experts and medical examiners and even talking to an agnostic, trying to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He went for months and months and months, finally coming to the conclusion that there is so much evidence, he could no longer deny it. And he himself accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And he wrote the book, Case for Christ. For those of you who like apologetics and like interesting scientific facts, it's an awesome book. For those of you who don't, it's an awesome book. Get it anyways. There is... There could be the danger of we just come to church and it's Easter and yes, he's risen. But my question to you is, do you really believe it? Do you? I can't answer that question. See, I think there are times in our life to where it's a good thing to doubt. Because doubt will cause us to go places we've never been to before. Doubt can cause us to really reaffirm our faith. It causes us to make a choice. Either you're with Christ or you're not. Lee Strobel found that out. 
You see, you go visit cemeteries in Illinois or go to Khufu, China, or go to cemeteries in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, or New York State, and you'll find the graves of the founders of Mormonism. You'll find the graves of the founder of Hinduism. You'll find the graves of the founders of Jehovah's Witness. And if you were to unearth all of their graves, you know what you would find? You would find their bones still in the grave. But there is only one religion, only one faith, whose God and Savior is alive. There's only one. Scriptures and historical writers tell us of the resurrection of the man named Jesus. Even the scoffers and the skeptics, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, the agnostics, the atheists, even they have to admit that the body of Jesus has never been found today. And if they try to disprove that fact, their arguments just fall flat. Church, what does the resurrection of Jesus Christ mean for you and me? This is what it means. It means that we can trust not only a living God, but we can trust a living Savior. Our Savior is alive. And that's the kind of God that we can trust. Maybe someone here this morning came here and you're wrestling. You need a Savior. You need a God that you can trust. He's alive. He just might be waiting for you to get in line so he can begin working in your life. Many of you know the name George Mueller, founder of the famous Ashley Down Orphanage in Bristol, England, who in all of the 62 years of service that he ran the orphanage, and they said in today's money, he raised, I believe, a couple of million dollars back in the 1800s. George Mueller said he never once in his entire life, now this is convicting, But he said he never once in his entire life ever asked God for one penny. Not once. And listen to his words. He said this. Quote, God has never failed me. Even in my greatest difficulties, heaviest trials and deepest poverty and need, he has never failed me. Because I was enabled by God's grace to trust him He has always come to my aid. I delight in speaking well of his name. Martin Luther, after he left the Roman Catholic Church and started the Protestant movement, was going through a difficult time in his life, a very difficult, dark, fearful time in his life and someone came up to him at this time and they saw him at a table and he was just taking his finger and he was just writing in the table and then they heard him say these words i don't know if it's latin or if it's german but he he said vivit vivit what that means and what he was saying at some of the darkest moments of his life vivit means he lives he lives See, a Savior that lives, a living Savior, you can trust Him. You can trust Him. A Savior who has the ability and the power to speak life back 
into his own physical body. Think about that. He has the power. You know, notice that the scriptures do not say that the Romans killed him. They punished him. They did not kill him. You know that. It says that he gave up his spirit. Jesus laid down his life. It wasn't laid down for him. He's the one that took his life away. He determined when that was enough. When he said, it is finished, he laid down his life. He willingly died. And then a God like that, that is able to summon life back into the bones. Three days later, are you kidding me? And we can trust him. You can trust him. No matter what you're going through. Doesn't matter what your need is, doesn't matter if it's physical, doesn't matter if it's financial, emotional, doesn't matter what relationship issue you're having in your life, doesn't matter how bad a marriage is, it doesn't matter how bad a relationship is with your kids or someone else in your life. You can trust him. You can trust him. I've often said you can trust the man who died for you, but I'll tag on to that. You can not only trust the man who died for you, you can trust the man who rose for you. Ben, come on up. Come on up. We are going to end in a song that we've done before. But folks, as they're coming up, I want to read to you. It's a little lengthy, but I believe that you'll get the gist of it. Brother Lockridge is a pastor that wrote the following. And I pray that it will speak to you. Speaking of God and Jesus. He's the one who made us. It's he who made you and not we ourselves. No means of measure can define his limitless love. And no far-seen telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of his sureless supply. I'm telling you today, you can trust him. No barrier can hinder him from pouring out his blessing. He's enduringly strong, and he's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast, and he's immortally graceful. He's empirically, powerfully, and impartially merciful. He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's the center savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. I'm trying to tell you, church, you can trust him. He does not have to call for help and you cannot confuse him. He doesn't need you and he doesn't need me. He stands alone in the solitude of himself. He's unique, he's unparalleled, he's unprecedented. He's supreme, he's preeminent. He's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the supreme problem of higher criticism. He's the fundamental doctrine of truthology. He's the miracle of the age. He's the superlative of everything good that you can call him. I'm trying to tell you folks, you can trust him. He can satisfy all your needs. He can do it simultaneously. He supplies strength for the weak and he's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he sees. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick and cleanses the leper. He forgives sinners and he discharges debtors. 
He delivers the captives. He defends the people. He blesses the young. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent. He beautifies the meek. I'm trying to tell you, church, you can trust him. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the path of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. And he's the highway to holiness. He's the gateway to glory. You can trust him. His office is manifold. His promises are sure. His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. And His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy and His burden is light. I wish I could describe Him to you, but He's indescribable because He's incomprehensible. He's irresistible because He's invincible. You can't get him off your hands. You can't get him off your mind. You can't outlive him and you can't live without him. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He is all things. He's the giver of life. He's the joy out of every sorrow. He's the light of every darkness. He's the peace that passes all understanding. He's the giver of every good and perfect gift. Can somebody say praise the Lord? You can trust Him this morning, church. There's no God before Him, and there will be no God after Him. The witnesses could not get their testimonies to agree. Pilate could not find any fault in Him, and Herod could not kill Him. Death could not handle him, and praise God, the grave could not hold him. There was nobody before him, and there will be nobody after him. He has no predecessor. He'll have no successor. You can impeach him, and he's not going to resign, praise the Lord. He's the master of the mighty. He's the captor of the conquerors. He's the head of heroes. He's the leader of legislators. He's the governor of governors. He's the prince of princes. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. Folks, I'm here to tell you that you can trust him. Amen. What does the resurrection mean for you and me today? It means that there's redemption. It means that there's a (laughs) do-over. It means there's a second chance for you and I. And a living God and a living Savior. There's no one else or nothing else in this world you can trust, but you can trust a living Savior. Somebody say amen. Amen. Would you bow your heads, please? Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord. Father, we are here this morning to rejoice in the wonderful fact of your resurrection. And Lord, You want it to impact each and every one of us. Lord, there's someone here this morning perhaps that needs that second chance. They have identified with Peter. They've been running in life. In and out of seclusion. Running and hiding from you, God. But may they hear the words that the angel spoke to the women. Go tell the disciples and Peter and go tell Josh or Mary or Joe that I'm alive. There is redemption for you. 
Lord, perhaps there is someone here, all of us do, but there's someone here that really needs someone they can trust. They're going through a dark moment. God, may they realize many things around us don't, aren't for real, but you are. Your resurrection is real. And if you are indeed alive and well, and if you indeed conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave, we can trust you. God, I pray that someone leaves today with a newfound hope, with a new ability to trust in the living God. And not just trust, but it will impact our actions. It will impact how we live when we get up tomorrow morning on Monday morning. Knowing that He lives, He lives. Thank you, Lord, for the message that you've given to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?